exclusive <laughs> new high school holla. Here it comes. Welcome back, everyone, to the H2S2 High School Holla Sports Show City Talk Edition, brought to you by our friends at David Solomon. They design unique T-shirts and merchandise with fun, thought-provoking messages. You can purchase these unique items through the David Solomon Facebook page and the Urban Fieldhouse website. Joining us on the H2S2 show is a man considered one of the greatest Chicago Bears of all time. I put him right up there to one of the greatest ever to wear the number 55. A member of the 85 Bears Super Bowl team, and he continuously stays heavily involved in helping the youth of Chicago through his charity organization. We welcome Otis Wilson to the H2S2 show. Welcome, Otis. Thank you very much. It's, it's good to be here. Good to talk to you. COVID-19 thing going on. You know, things are not usual, we're not usual times, but we got to do the best we can to stay healthy and still get that word out because that's the most important thing. And I'm just glad to be here and I'm honored. But Otis, so. we always like to ask our first time guests of the show to share with us one of the best high school memories you have as a player. Wow, I got so many of them. God Almighty, which ones do I choose? Probably back in, in, in 1974, um, we won the city championship in Brooklyn, New York. I went to Thomas Jefferson High School, and Mo Finkelstein was the head coach at that time. And, you know, playing, you know, you pretty much play every position out there in high school. So wherever Mo put me, that's where I played that weekend. I, you know, tight end, fullback, linebacker. I was the everything, man. He, and he told me, and one time he was thinking about putting me at quarterback. I said, Mo, I'm glad you didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> most memorable moment was it was seven nothing score we played D Wood Clinton in, in the Bronx and they were beating us and with like five minutes to go we drove down the field and we scored and so that made it seven nothing they got the ball they drove down the field and scored and the last that was a, uh, a pass play I batted the ball down and we won seven to six city championship. That was our second city championship in 19, what was it, 74? And so we won it back to back, 74 and 75. That great high school memory. Now, I gotta ask this, Otis. Does every defensive player always play offense at some point in their career? Well, you know, starting out, like you play on the playground. I mean, I idolized all the running backs, you know, and all the wide receivers. You thought, you know, you, you thought you was, you know, <laughs> Foreman or Lynn Swan. You just want to be everybody. I mean, so, yes, you, you experiment. You, you get out there and, and then you, you find a fit because you, you kind of fall into it. And it don't find you, you find it. And, and it just happens. I mean, with my, I would say, aggressiveness the way I played, I, I fared well on defense because I certainly didn't want to be getting hit. I'd rather be the hammer than the nail. So um, it, it just worked out that way. At fullback, I, mean, I ran the ball well, but I, I got tired of people banging on me. And I said, I'm going over the linebacker and stay. And that's what, that's what I did. Now, Otis, we have a lot of student athletes that listen and follow the show. Tell us what the process was like for you being recruited out of high school, and how did you come to your college decision? 
Wow. I mean, and, and you know, see, it was wide open back in the 70s. I think I visited probably maybe 20, 25 schools around the country. And, you know, from Ohio State to Michigan, Syracuse, uh, Louisville, Iowa, Iowa State. I mean, it, it, and mind you, I'm flying by the seat of my pants, you know, because myself, as well as my, my parents, had no idea what was going on, other than the fact that these white men sitting in her living room telling them what they can do for her son. And the key question, the key word was a free scholarship because it was six of us and obviously she couldn't afford all six of us, you know, to go to college. You know, my, you know, my grandmother was an entrepreneur and my grandfather had a record store in, in Brooklyn and they paid for my older brother. He was the first one to go to college in the family. And I knew my deal was I had to get my own. And my vehicle was sports and football and basketball. I played it all my life. And, and, and you, you see the progression, you know, each year. It was almost like a man child. They said, man, oh, you ought to be, you know, from peewee football, you ought to be playing this on this level this level. In high school, you ought to be playing on this level. And then, like, Bo Schembecker, Woody Hayes will come into my high school locker room uh, every other weekend or so during the offseason and collaborate with my high school coach, because he was that innovative in Brooklyn. I mean, major schools would come. You know, Johnny Majors from Pittsburgh. You know, they would be sitting down in there, going over plays, doing stuff. And basically talking about us like cattle, you know. I got a linebacker over there. I got a tackle over there. So Marvin Battle went to Michigan, played a fullback. Um, Tony Anthony went to tackle. He went to Ohio State. And I ended up going to Syracuse. But getting back to your original question was, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, in talking to, you know, going to the schools, you know, when I went to Pittsburgh, I got paired up with Tony Dorsett. You know, so I would, I would talk to him. I would ask him questions. You go on campus. I mean, the first time I've been out of Brooklyn, I was 17. I mean, you know, and I'm watching these guys, you know, the juniors, seniors, freshmen. I mean, they're kicking it. I'm like, man, college is fun. You know, I don't know if I could do this, but, you know, you know your focus is football and that they want to give you a scholarship. So, you know, after the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh school, you kind of get the hang of it and you know, you know, what's going on and what, you know, how to how it goes. And the key thing is, and I tell any kid, wherever you go, education is a quality education on a high on a college level. Go somewhere where you know you can play and perform and better, you know, and hone your skills, you know, for four years and, and so that you, you know, get ready for the NFL. That's what's gonna happen. Now that doesn't happen for everybody. You know, only the, you know, the ones that put the work in and the ones that are blessed. You know, so for me, I just wanted to go somewhere where I can play and where my parents, was easy for them to come see me because all they had to do was get on the train from Brooklyn right up to uh, Syracuse every weekend and come check me out. But once I got up there, I didn't like the, the environment. That was like way too white for me and uh, it just wasn't, you know, it just didn't suit me. So. 
I said, and this is God's honor truth. I said, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, this is the school I want to go. And I picked Louisville. I said, I want to go south, but not too far south because I'm not, I'm a city guy from Brooklyn, New York. And that's how I ended up at the University of Louisville. You know, my, my high school, Mo kind of got mad at me. He wanted me to stay there and stick it out of Syracuse. I'm like, Mo, that, that's not the place for me. I got to feel comfortable where I'm at so that I can go out there and shine, man. The rest is history. Man, I like that. I like that, that process. But it's amazing because behind your story, there are so many student athletes in Chicago that can really gain some knowledge off of that because they need that type of uh, understanding. And that was great. But what was your transition from high school to college like? Was it tough? It wasn't that tough. It, yes, you had to put the work in because obviously on every level, you know, the guys are bigger, stronger, and faster. You know, so, you know, and I came out of high school, I, I was 190 pounds, you know, fullback and, and linebacker. So, you know, getting on that training table, I, I jumped right straight up to about 220 and, you know, juggling school, because number one, you're a student athlete first, and then you're so, that was like weighing on you because you had to make sure you had to get your books right or you couldn't play and then make that adjustment. So it was a tough adjustment, but, you know, the good Lord, I thank him. He put something in me that when I, le I left home, my homeboy, um, World Be Free, at that time he was Lloyd Free, World Be Free said, oh, when you go up there, you got to have the eye of the tiger. Don't let nothing stop you. You know, and, and I went up there with that mentality with a chip on my shoulder. And I, I, I kept my mouth quiet, you know, because um, Frank Maloney who was the head coach at that time. He said, all all Americans stand up in this room. The whole room stood up. He said, this is the best of the best around the country. You guys got to make this team. And all I did was look at everybody, size them up. I said, I got my work cut out. And I just went up there and I just started knocking people out. I like that. And for those young folks listening, World Be Free is someone you really need to know from the from the Hoop Squad era, boy. I'm telling you, World Be Free was something to watch. Yeah, he, I lived on the first floor and he lived on the fifth floor. Believe me, I, I spent a whole lot of time on that, that black top. Oh, you can work with others? Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, Otis, you had a very successful college career at, at Louisville, which led to you becoming a first-round draft pick of our beloved Chicago Bears in 1980 NFL Draft, and five years later, eventually winning the Super Bowl championship in 1985. How would you summarize your NFL career and the platform it gave you to do what you're doing today to help other people? Wow. Well, when I, you know, I mean, put it this way, you know, college was, you know, that's where you hone your skills and you keep your fingers crossed and you pray a lot. Hopefully you get a chance and you can show what you can do on, on the big, the big level. And it worked out well. I mean, I, I ended up a first round draft pick, the 19th player in the first round, the only linebacker to go in the first round that year. And coming to Chicago, uh, it was another eye-opener for me because um, that, that day when you come in, you have the jersey that has like number one on it and 
you do your uh, press conference, and I'm in the in there waiting because me and Matt Suey, I was number one, and Matt Suey came from Penn State. He was a running back. He was number two. So we were we were rookies that year together. And I go in the weight room, waiting on my turn. And I see, I don't know if you remember him, Vince Evans, yeah. quarterback, about the same height as me, and, and weigh about the same as I do. And I thought he was a DB or a linebacker. He said, uh, you know, we introduced ourselves. We kind of talked. I said, well, what position do you play? He said, uh, I'm the quarterback. I'm like, you the quarterback? I took my jacket off and started weightlifting. I did that thing. <laughs> I said, I got my work cut out. But um, working with Buddy Ryan was truly a blessing. I mean, he was, he was pretty much like my high school coach. And I think I, I always credit Mo Finkelstein. And I talked to him. I got to give him a call. You know, I talk to him at least once a month to this day. You know, I stay in close, close contact with him because conditioning, eating, um, work habits, I developed all that from him. I mean, to this day. I mean, I'm, but, well, I, I played at 245, I'm 230 now, and I'm in just as good a shape then as I am now. Now I'm a little older, but it's still, I, I credit all that to him. So coming in, I knew. I was mentally, physically ready. So now all I had to do was learn the system. And Buddy had a very, 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 very complicated system. I mean, we had a playbook, I would say, that had probably maybe about 250 plays. And out of every one of those plays, we had three or four different responsibilities, depending on whether it came out of the high back, a two back, a one back, a guy going motion or a tight end going motion, changes your play. We call AFC. Automatic, automatic front and cover, and that dictates your responsibility. So lo and behold, my head was swimming. I didn't know if I was coming or going. Sometime, and he assigned Bruce Heron to me, or me to Bruce Heron, I should say, because I'm the rookie. He said, Bruce, I want you to teach this rook. And he called everybody, you know, he don't call you by your name. You don't earn a name until you earn you earned that. So he said, 55, a rookie. And he said, you can't win with rookies because they get you beat every time. I couldn't stand Buddy Ryan because I didn't understand him. Because in, in college, we played a 5-2 defense. Basically, everybody cut across and all that did was clean up, clean up the play and made the tackle. So he and now I have responsibilities. You know, I got to play with the linebacker inside. I got to play with the corner. I got to play with the strong safety. And I have my own responsibility. And everybody play off of everybody, knowing what they do. So uh, until the 13th game of that year, my rookie year, I was just a special teams guy. Jerry Muckenstern got hurt. I started to leave town, get in my car and drive somewhere because I didn't, didn't want that didn't want that, that responsibility because I knew I would screw up because I still didn't have it down. But mind you, I had enough of it where my athletic system, because sometimes I would just go blitz and tackle the quarterback, and Buddy be cussing me out over there. What is he? What is he doing? What is Ruth? What did you tell 55? Good play though, because I sacked the quarterback, so he couldn't say nothing. <laughs> but he cussed me out in the meeting because I just screwed up the responsibility. But that's what I had to do. I mean, I had to let my athleticism go because if I'm a thinking man, you can't play. And so by thinking slowed me down, but once I got it, because I sat with Buddy from that point on, 
I sat with him and, and understood, and he showed me, you know, what what he's looking for in the, in an offense and how to stop that offense. And I understood the game plan and the scheme. It was like letting the dogs out and run. Because by then, you know, you know, yeah, I just tell Todd Bell sometimes I give him a finger like this. That sometimes, if I'm supposed to blitz, he go blitz. I go cover his man because I had foot speed. And when I'm working with Terry Smith on the corner, I see that 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 guy coming in. I know somebody's going out. I would take that guy, and when the, the tackle blocked down, I get in the running lane. So it was just so many different responsibilities. So it, it, it was a task. But we had the most, you know, phenomenal athletes. You know, because Hampton came the year before me. Um, then I came the second year, you know, and from then on every year, I think 83 was our best draft ever because the most, they probably, you know, from Wilbur Marshall to, to um, Jimbo Covert, all that, that collection, that group was intact. And you can see it from 82, 83, 84, 85, how we started just, just whooping on people. I mean, everybody just came together. Everybody enjoyed one another. I mean, we partied on and off the field. We all got along well. I mean, Walter was franchise. You know, Buddy said, hey, touch Walter. You touch Walter, hurt Walter, I'm cutting you because that's the only thing we got over there. You know, so we left Walter alone. Everybody else was fair game. And, and the defense came together. I mean, we had, I mean, you're talking about going down that line. I mean, we had Wilbur. Myself, but but uh, Al Harris that sat out that year in '85. Todd Bell sat out that year in '85. They were original, you know, starters. And Dave Gerson came in, took Todd Bell's place, and Wilbur took, you know, um, Al Harris's spot. And we didn't skip a beat. We just kept on, kept on rolling. I mean, everybody in that defense except Les Frazier, Mike Richardson, and Fridge, Mike Hardenstein, which they rotated him with Fridge. Everybody was a two-time Pro Bowl. I mean, Richard down on that end, and Will, who are you going to double-team over there? Me and Hampton on the other side, on the strong side. Who are you going to double-team over here? Um, Singletary in the middle. Free is coming up in the middle with McMichael. You could, all we did was tell Les Frazier, um, Fentick, and all those guys, get on that DB because he's going to throw the ball right away. If you don't throw the ball, he's going to be hurt. And that's how we played all day long. And we appreciate your NFL career here in Chicago because it meant a lot to many of us. But more importantly than that, you continue to help the communities throughout Chicago. Tell us about some of the many things you are doing through your charitable association. Well, let me let back up a little bit because, uh, you know, my grandmother and my mother always instilled in me. She said, Otis, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not going to tell you what they used to call me, but they didn't call me Otis, but they, they used to call me Bogey <laughs> when I grew up. So I don't know why, I don't ask me why. You've been blessed to be a blessing to other people. And I'll, I'll never forget that. You know, because I used to give my grandmother my mother's money, and they give it away. She said, I just gave it to the girl, lady in church. They needed more than me. I'm like, okay. And so that instilled in me, you know, whenever I got the opportunity, whenever I got the chance, to give back. I mean, when you're an athlete, you get taken out of your community in Brooklyn, New York, get thrust into a, 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 a pretty much predominantly white community 
of the Lake Forest where we were practicing that. And, you know, you don't see our, you know, see people like yourselves all the time. You see, you know, different, a lot of different colors. And um, I used to go to, they had this organization called the Boys and Girls Club. You know, Vivi Sori, you know, he headed that up. And so he would always, him and Walter would just, you know, drag me, they didn't drag me down. They said, come on, come on with us and we go down there and we hang out really on the west side. And I think it was in Lawndale. And um, that's pretty much how I started. You know, like I started with the Boys and Girls Club. I started with the um, YMCA's and just really a lot of the Chicago, local Chicago, you know, entities. But then I said, you know, just something inside my spirit was saying, you know, you can do a little more. You know, that's when I started my non-profit. And you had to learn a lot of lessons because I did a golf outing. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I raised about $25,000. It cost me $25,000 to put it on. So I had to end up spending money out of my pocket to give to the charity. And I said right then and there, whenever you raise money, you got to raise money to cover all your expenses. Then you got to raise money, enough money to give to the charity. So that's pretty much, and to this day, I still do my golf outing. You know, this year's in August. I pushed it back. You told me in July. But, you know, my thing was, where do I fit in? How am I going to fit in? And we started out a, a technology program, you know, and, you know, health and fitness. And I said, number one, if you're healthy, that gives you a great advantage. And if you're knowledgeable, you know, that gives you that, that extra one-two punch. And so I always instilled in these young people, I said, you got, God has blessed you. Your body's your temple. You, know, you can't help nobody if you can't help yourself. And so we started the fitness program. You know, we had a, a, the nutrition part of it. And we had the, you know, the computer classes. You know, and then we were helping with their homework. That's where, the, that's the original. And then it matured into, you know, a financial literacy piece. Then we have the martial arts program, we have the nutrition program, we have the internship program where we get them jobs and then when they get out of school. You know, then we have the girls dance program because sometimes you have to separate the girls from the boys. Gotta have their own little thing. And But the, really the reality of it is, the reason why we have so many things that we were doing because I saw the condition our community was in, that we lacked in so many departments. You know, they didn't have this, they didn't have that. But yet, they were resilient because under all that pressure and stress, it still came every day. Now, you might have to instill stuff in them every day, but that's only because some parents, it was no parent, it was one parent, it was an uncle, it was an aunt, it was a grandmother. It was just, you know, uh, just, I, was, I don't want to say a hopeless situation, but it was just a difficult situation for that young boy or girl. And our age group was from eight, 18. I work with all Chicago public school kids. Uh, we, we, I used to do it through the park district. I used to go right straight into the schools. Um, you know, any way we can connect with them, that's what we did. We, we now up to about, well, I would say probably, right now we got three rent. We, we can work with as many schools as we want. You know, and that's depending on the dollars and cents. But at least minimum, about 15 schools I work with. And, you know, then I added the football program because that's my world. And, um, 
you know, I will continuously work in the community and get them to understand you have to have a game plan in life. You don't have a game plan, you don't know where you're going, you don't know where you're from, you can't get anywhere. You're gonna be spinning your wheels in the mud. And to have that game plan, you gotta be mentally and physically strong. You know, because there's gonna be ups and downs, there's gonna be some roadblocks, there's gonna be a lot of deterrence. You know, some people, some of your friends, ain't gonna wanna be your friend no more because you're trying to do right. But hey, don't worry about that, we all went through that. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you personally, you know, I got a lot of homies that locked up, killed, beat up, still in Brooklyn, but they still my homies. I mean, and but yet I, I chose a different path. I said, I got to get out of here, y'all. I can't hang with y'all. I got to go to practice. So that's basically, you know, my, my total reason for, you know, giving back started with my, my family, my grandmother, and, you know, imparting that wisdom and until this day, so I can't do it no more. I'm gonna still do what I can do for our young people and you know, COVID-19 ain't gonna stop me. Hey, the only person that's gonna stop me is good love. When he says job well done, then it's done. And you can't grow weary doing good work, that's for sure. <laughs> I have fun doing it, I love it because I stay in shape. I mean, they used to hate me when I first came in there, man. Why am I running, why am I doing this? I'm sorry, you come with notes, you know, get, get in from their parents and say, well, my son can't work out that man. He's using muscles he never used before. Yeah. That's why he's yeah. so, hey, he'll be fine. Now I get letters and notes from my parents. When are you coming back? My son loves it. He gets off the couch now. He don't even deal with that, that um, the PlayStation. He does physical, he eats better. She said, you've done a, you, you've worked miracles. So, you know, they, when, they, when they know better, they do better. I know that's right. Now, Otis, you mentioned it, and I wanted to talk a little bit more. You've taken time to partner with Chicago Public Schools and the CPS Sports Administration. Talk about the, this partnership and your efforts in helping CPS football. Well, you know, in, in talking with a lot of the coaches and doing my 707 programs and my, um, you know, football skills and drills class, you know, and then really just watching them from afar. You see the condition our uh, high schools are in. I mean, a lack of athletes. You know, some schools only have 15 or 20 kids out because kids don't want to play football. You know, kids are too rough for them. Uh, there are a lot of reasons why they don't play. And so it was hard getting kids, you know, out to, out to play. And then, you know, at that one point when the NBA was taking kids out of high school, that really made it hard because you had football guys trying to fit into a basketball body and just trying to skip right through and just go right into the NBA. And only much, only few of them made it, but still that was, you know, it was a culture in coaching. They only wanted that LeBron James kid. They didn't want those kids that they had to develop and spend time with that wasn't at that level. They just wanted that, that kid that gave them a name so they can, you know, college coaches respect. So I just said simply this, you know, let me do what I can do for my end. Teach them the fundamentals, because I've always said, if they fundamentally sound, it's gonna be hard to beat. You're gonna have to work hard to beat somebody fundamentally sound. And that, that's pretty much, you know, I, I started with two teams. I started with, you know, so I got to a point where now they're really starting to recognize what I'm doing 
and I'm trying to do more coaching clinics and getting the coaches prepared because a lot of times the coaches are not prepared. They, they, they know how to play the game, but they don't know how to coach the game. That's why I know how to play the game. But there's certain things I'm not going to be very versed in coaching. So, you know, I just do what I can. And we build it one, one, one team at a time. And eventually my goal is to get the NFL involved, to get some money put into this thing where we, you know, get them all uniforms and get them all the quality coaches, train the coaches, train the athletes where they can compete. Because that's really all you want them to do is to get out there and compete. And if they don't get an opportunity to compete, you know, their scholarship is limited. Now, for those listeners who might think that uh, playing sports is mostly a hobby for young people, how important is football and other sports for inner city youth today? Oh, football, baseball, basketball is not a hobby anymore. It is the, the, the way to a successful career and, and a launching pad to put an individual like I did. No bank account to a nice bank account. To be able to take care of your family, to be able to do things that you never imagined that you could do. Yes, it's a game. Yes, we play a game. But the elite players, I mean, they flourish. I mean, my, we can't compare our dollars to the dollars that they're giving away today, you know, because from in the 80s to the 90s, you know, we played for, for pennies compared to what these kids are playing for now. So I, I, I tell kids, this is the means number one. If you play well in high school, you might have an opportunity to get a scholarship. That will propel you, number one, to qualify you in the job market, in the job world when you have a college degree. Football is a, a small window, 10-year window span. After that, they start looking at you like you're crazy. They wanted a young kid to come in for less money. When you make them more money, they're gonna cut your money short, give it to the young kid coming in. So to get to the, that big level, and not a many you get there, then you know you can flourish. So I don't look at it as a hobby. I look at it as an opportunity and a means yeah. to get you over the hump and take care of you for the rest of your life and your friends and your family. And as you mentioned, uh, from high school, it leads you to a uh, to a quality education. It doesn't matter where you go. God gave you an ability to get something great. They can't take that education away from you. And when they see that, they look at them, well, what kind of degree you got? Well, what is that? What is that? If you don't have it, you know, then you kind of date the, the second call. Now, how can our listeners further support the uh, Otis Wilson Charities, and what can they do to help your efforts? Well, the, the, the biggest thing is, you know, because you never can do anything by yourself. The only good is the team that you put together. And I appreciate in the beginning you said you have some volunteers because we always do an event. We always, you know, need volunteers. So you can just go to the website, Otis Wilson Charitable Association.org. Click on to it where it says contact. Um, leave your contact information. We'll, we'll, we won't, you know, compromise your, your, your information in any way. We keep it discreet. We'll call upon you when needed and, you know, when we're doing stuff, because this year we, we're not doing a whole lot of stuff because of the, you know, the C-19. But for the most part, you know, we, we do three or four events a year. And 
a lot of people go to the website and you know leave the information. We just redid our website. It looks nice. I talked to the web web guy today. I talked to my daughter. I gave the approval. Let's put it out there. So you know, I'm looking forward to it. You know, it's going to be unfortunately it's going to probably be about six months before we do anything, and and we don't know until we get this virus thing uh, under under grips or you know cure. You know, it's kind of hesitant to put a lot of people in, in close contact. So, and all the stuff I do is like hands-on. So, you know, just leave that contact information, otiswilsoncharitableassociation.org, and look us up and see what we do more. And there's some great reading on there. We have a lot of you know, huge, huge sponsors, and you know, it's just it's just been a blessing. I tell you, you know, good people always want to be around good people. You know, I play a lot of golf. There were a lot of, you know, CEOs and first thing they asked, well, what are you doing now? I said, I'm going to hit it down this fairway about 300 yards on you, but take your money. Then I want you to come all on board with me with this charity. And then by the end of the day, you know, you get to know somebody and play with them for about three hours. And no one said no. I mean, if it's not financial, they know somebody that can do financial. They, they do what they can do. Because everybody don't have the drink. Everybody don't have the time. But... You just weed, weed through everybody and use everybody where their strengths are. And we want people to sign up. Even though it might be six months out, sign up now. Let's use your time, talent, and resources. So when the time comes, we have people in position ready to work. Roll up them sleeves. Let's help the community. Now, Otis, Chicago has been a part of a lot of unrest that has occurred across the nation. I just want to ask you, what words of encouragement do you have for the city of Chicago? Well, you know, it's unfortunate, and, and, and this, this, this interview will last probably three weeks in talking about the situation, that people of color have been at the bottom for so long, and the system has been designed to keep us down there. And, you know, the police system is, and the financial system is not in our favor. You know, one thing I loved about sports was, you know, you got an equal playing field. You know, when you got white boys out there, and hey, your rule ain't no different than mine. I'm gonna take your bread or you gonna take mine. And, I, and obviously you know who took what, because I, I ended up, and, but society is not like that. And so I say to young, young black men, and just really people of color, I mean, and even though we educate ourselves, get the best education, we still at a disadvantage because they always find a way to, you know, give that other guy, you know, the job or uh, put other rules in play, bend the rules so that you really stay where you are. And, you know, but don't let that deter you because as long as you educated, you still can come out, can come out on top. Now, for our young men, the police system has been designed to suppress us, to keep us in play. So I tell them, comply, comply, comply. Whenever you get stopped, uh, police officers always say something, you'd have the right to call 911 and ask for a supervisor to come out right on that spot if you feel threatened. Don't go back and forth with them because you don't win. You know, we had, you know, my, my, my family, I got sisters, 
I've been in law enforcement. I got nephews right now in the New York City Police Department. When you screw up, they just keep on coming. When they dial 1013, that means a cop needs assistance. They come from everywhere. You're not going to win. So I tell you, comply with them. If you feel threatened, you know, dial 911. Tell them you want a sergeant or a lieutenant to come out on the scene. Tell them where you are. And by law, they got to do it. If anything else happened from that point, that guy, you know, now I would love to say he would be in trouble because there's so many of them that done some things that they haven't been in trouble. And, and, and then we just as black folks are, are really sick and tired of what's going on. You see what's with the Aubrey and, you know, the George, George Floyd. I mean, enough's enough. And we just have to stand up together. We have to learn how to be together. And what I'm seeing in this move now is somewhat back like the 60s when they were together. Because that's one thing that we haven't been, you know, after a while. Because when the, um, I can't think of the gentleman's name, got shot 16 times. Laquan McDonald. Laquan McDonald, we protested, we protested, then it stopped and went away. We can't stop. We got to put pressure on them, make them uncomfortable. So I've said to them, be steady in what you do. You know, um, be out there, be voiceless. And, and stand up for your rights. I mean, because, you know, it's got to stop at some point. I mean, you know, you know like I do. You know, every life is valuable. You know, especially ours. You know? I mean, they've been taking us for long enough. I was just looking at, listening on the news where they, they list a couple of young men. One in California, one in um, Texas, I think, somewhere. Come on, I mean, this is getting crazy. And I hope that people listening and watching this will come to understand that uh, you know we can't just let it die down we have to continue to stand up and, and, and for our rights and so education I, power I mean, education. we have to educate ourselves know the situation you know and you know and, and, and just keep moving forward I mean don't be satisfied definitely learn at 62 I'm still learning I'm, I'm right there learning with you. Now, Otis, we always let our guests acknowledge those family, those friends who support you and all that you do. Who would you like to, as we say on the show, give a big holler out to who's been supporting you? Wow. I mean, oh, God. Um, I would say, number one, uh, Quincy Wilson, my son, is down at the um, University of of West Virginia, West, I'm sorry, West Virginia State College, coaching running backs. Um, my daughter, Kyla, that, that works for me, that runs the, you know, day-to-day -day operations. And, you know, and, you know, I always say, I got a lot of great friends. You know, Jim Reynolds at Loop Capital has been a blessing. I mean, um, Lyle Logan at, at Northern Trust. I mean, Larry Bikela, you know, Tyler Lane Construction. I mean, it's, it's going to take me about 30 minutes to <laughs> run down that list. But, uh, you know, Mike Jordan, I mean, you know, I talk to him at least, you know, every other week. Uh, Richard Dent, I mean, you know, I talked to him yesterday. I mean, Dan Hampton. Um, I mean, the, the key is family and friends are everything. I mean, the older you get, the more you appreciate your family and your friends. Uh, I've learned my teammates are brothers for life. Even going back to high school, I still talk to Frank Buckley, um, Clark Lamboy, you know, um, Bernardo Paez, all those guys. I stay, we get together, 
you know, Willie Holmes and all my, my Wilbur Marshall. You know, he's, I can't wait to get to go see him in Hawaii. You know, he just moved out there. I said, well, hey, save me a room. You know, and, um, you know, so yeah, I mean, just all my, 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 my partners that become brothers for life and my family, my sisters and brothers, my kids, my grandkids, you know, my people that keep the foundation running strong and, you know, it's it just a blessing. And I, and I thank the Lord that he's instilled in me the energy and I just keep getting, to keep learning and keep getting that wisdom and staying around good people because you don't know everything. And you're only as important as your team. So I put myself around the right people to keep me build up. And I probably in some way build them up as well because I always throw my two cents in. Well, we want to thank our special guest, former Chicago Bear Otis Wilson, for joining us on this special H2S2 edition of City Talk here on the High School Holler Sports Show. We appreciate your time, brother, and all that you do throughout the Chicago community. Thank you, Otis. Well, I, I certainly appreciate you, and thank you much. And you're doing a great job. And I see you got the Bears. I got to say, go Bears. And you know, <laughs> no, I'm rocking. I'm rocking. <laughs> you know, a platform to, to talk about what I do and, you know, and just, just put that positive message out there because I tell them, be strong, stay safe, and, you know, keep God first. High School Holler.